Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we are joined by Xiang Chen. He is the VP of Strategy and Insights at WPIC Marketing and Technologies, a company that provides market data solutions for brands looking to enter the Chinese market. Xiang is a bilingual individual with deep knowledge of Eastern and Western cultures. With a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, He began his career as a project planner at a leading Canadian telecom company overseeing major network upgrades. Xiang later joined a Beijing-based startup as a product director where he successfully established the IT team and managed diverse projects for esteemed clients worldwide. In today's conversation, we gained valuable insights into the impact of his role at WPIC, as well as WPIC's incredible Descripto tool, which provides valuable information about the Chinese market and the importance of data-informed decisions in running a successful consumer business in China. We touch on the challenges of expanding into the Chinese market and the need for a tailored approach to branding and marketing in China and the value of having reliable data to navigate the challenges of expanding into the market. We conclude by talking about the upcoming 618 Festival, a major shopping event in China that takes place on June 18th each year. We discuss the festival's significance for both brands and consumers and how it has emerged as the key opportunity for companies to boost sales and gain exposure in the Chinese market. Enjoy. You need to make data-informed decision, right? Because the market is vast and there's lots of actors playing in it. And on top of that, what we've seen in the recent two or three years is the dominance of social media and influencer marketing added an extra multiple dimensions to this whole mix. And so the result of this is one of the most sophisticated and well-informed group of consumers in the world. KOLs are educating and the brands of the world are fighting for the attention and the money of this group of consumers. So therefore, to be successful in China, every brand that wants to be in China needs to know their product market fit as well as their price market fit. And that's what Descriptive provides is that insight. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Xiang, welcome to the show. Thank you, Todd. It's an honor to be here. So where are you based right now where we're recording you from? Uh, I am currently in Nanjing, China right now, where we have uh, one of our offices in in China. I am uh, normally based out of Beijing, but due to my job, I frequently travel between Beijing and uh, Nanjing and Hangzhou, where my team operates out of. I loved China for travel. I thought it was one of the best places to travel. I don't know if you do trains. I was a big fan of taking the trains and staying away from the airports. Um, how do you travel when you need to get around? Do you fly? Uh, I am almost exclusively a train guy. Yeah. You know? And with the f- high-speed trains, I can pretty much get anywhere in China in five hours uh, with a train. 
it's only when I go to like coastal, like somewhere in Guangzhou or uh, Guangxi provinces, I would fly because a eleven hour train is uh, less than pleasant. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, for for business, I mo- I'm almost ninety five percent trains. I also live by the train station. And that's a pro tip, I think, for a lot of people. If you're moving around China and you haven't gotten into the the train thing, <clears throat> do it because you you have to show you you don't have to show up super early. Uh, you get a nice, comfortable ride, uh, especially if you're afraid to fly. That's definitely the way to go. Uh, and you get even some 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 internet, right? Like you know, I remember I used to be able to get you know now that there's five G and everything, but you can hotspot to your computer. You can actually get some work done. You can actually send some messages. You can do a few things online as well, which you know a lot of times you can't in an airplane as well. Uh, and then you you know you get in and and like take Beijing for an example. When you fly into the airport, you have at least an hour from the airport to get downtown, whereas the train station's literally right downtown. You can be where you need to go. Uh, in a short amount of time. So um, yeah, exactly. Pro tip, anybody traveling around China, definitely look into the trains. You don't have to fly everywhere. And it's a very comfortable experience. Okay, uh, let's jump into a little bit of your background. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about your role and what you do at WPIC. Okay, so uh, a little bit about about me. I am a Chinese Canadian. I was born in China. I moved to Canada at a very young age. My family actually moved to Calgary. I was eight. And I was raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and uh, then got my bachelor's in engineering at the University of Toronto. So I spent basically my my adulthood in uh, Toronto. Uh, I moved to China in 2018 and uh, joined WPIC shortly after the pandemic broke out uh, in the in the twenty in 2020. Right? I am uh, perfectly bilingual. Um, I speak uh, Chinese. Mandarin is my mother tongue, and I speak English. You know, I. I think I speak English perfectly fine. Natively, yeah. Um, <laughs> natively, right? Um, I'm, I know both cultures very well. Uh, I'm sort of like a bridge between East and West in, in WPIC as well as for our clients who are mostly uh, foreign uh, Western companies because you know I'm raised in one culture, raised in a Chinese-Canadian household, but I'm also got most of my education in another, in the uh, Canadian education system. So... Yeah, I'm pretty, uh, pretty good at reading both cultures. Yeah, and that is really important because they're very different. It, they are, um, right? And uh, so at WPIC, what I do is uh, I used to – I start off leading the IT product division. We have uh, IT product services, right? I led that division. Then my role expanded to include the data insights division as well, or what we call uh, Descripto. Uh, earlier this year, I was promoted into the role of the VP of Strategy and Insights, where I support the teams running all of our e-com programs out of China, right? So that's the strategy side of my title, uh, as well as still keeping the data division, which uh, is the insights uh, part of my title. I want to talk first about Descripto. You know, I've been longtime friends with the founders of WPIC, uh, Jake and, and Joseph, going on uh, over a decade at this point. And Descripto, I mean, no shade on any other product from WPIC. And I don't claim to know them all very well. But Descripto is so super cool. And I would go into why I think it is, but I'm going to let you do that. Please tell us about Descripto, that, that, that market data solution from WPIC, and why is it such a useful tool for brands? Descripto is a complex system. 
It's where we deploy proprietary data collection systems uh, combined with industry-leading data sources. And that source includes first-hand consumer research, you know, consumer data, and first-hand platform data. So not getting a second-hand, third-hand, but first-hand data combined with our own proprietary data collection or data collected. Right? All of this is fed into a tuned and we tune is a you know it's frequently tuned analysis system. And the output of that system is is being analyzed or studied by a team of experts. And these are people who combine many decades of e-com, Chinese e-com experience. That's our team of experts, data expert data analysts, looking at the results. And then they either refine the system and the process repeats itself, or they accept they accept the result and then create insightful data reports uh, based on the client's requirements and on the result of that uh, system. So it's a beautiful combination of uh, technology, process, and people. And uh, the output is generally very, very uh, insightful, <laughs> pun intended, right? And uh, our clients are generally very happy with, uh, with the reports and the, pre- the presentation they receive. You said the tuning part. And I want to go off script for a sec and ask you about that tuning part. Because what is it about the digital landscape of China that requires tuning of Descripto. What are the types of things that are changing? Regulations, you know, information privacy stuff. You know, uh, I'll let you answer that. But why are you tuning it? What is actually happening in the broader landscape around China or just in the world in general? For, for, for example, it doesn't even have to be specific to China, but just what is happening in that world that requires the tuning? Uh, that's a great question. So um, a couple of years back, and actually not, not looking back, it's probably four or five years back, uh, the rise of PDD, right, really brought a seismic shift for Chinese e-com. And um, with a, PDD is the second largest platform uh, in China, uh, overtaking Pinduoduo. JD. Pinduoduo, yes. It's a NASDAQ-listed company. PDD is the ty- uh, ticker. So we, we often refer to it as PDD. Um, so with that, with the rapid rise of PDD, of course, we need to include it in our systems and processes so we get a comprehensive look at uh, you know, the market data, whether a brand has a PDD store, whether PDD is a right fit for a potential client because the demographic, the price point you know, is vastly different than JD or T-Mall, which is the traditional ones, right? And then recent years, and this, this is actually uh, 2021, going back to 2022, is the rise of Douyin, or known in the West as TikTok, uh, which um, it's a, not only a very rapid ascent, but there's also a completely different uh, way of doing business, selling online. PVD was, was fast, but it was still a traditional marketplace. But Douyin is what we call an interest-based or uh, social commerce, where the purchasing behavior is completely different than what we've seen so far. And again, this requires tuning, inclusion of more data sources, more tools, uh, more platforms, and then the, uh, the collection and analysis all require, uh, you know, we call tuning, optimization, you know, iterations. So stuff like this, when it happens, we adapt, right? We're not just looking only at the original Tmall and JD and say we're done, but we need to adapt as the, uh, the economy and the uh, Chinese market 
changes. Because I would imagine some of that data you're trying to provide is insights into not just the snapshot of what is, but where were we? And then let's draw that line from A to B to try to extrapolate out and figure out, okay, where are we going? And what are people looking at? And how are they basing purchasing behaviors or even the fact of, you know, I don't know how long it's been since China has seen a payment solution enhancement or or pivot or new payments coming in. But I'm imagining that you you really have to stay on top of that because that's got to be a part of what's really useful for brands coming in. So uh, wrap that all up into a question that that says, what are some examples or situations where brands are actually working with WPIC on Descripto data projects? Without disclosing specifics, generally speaking, uh, we can help a brand at any stage of their China strategy, and we have. So first, the first type, the first category are brands looking to enter China that they, they're not present in China. They are looking to expand overseas. For, for them, they're foreign. Overseas means China. And when they're looking to enter China or launch a new product line, uh, what we normally can offer is an opportunity assessment, a size of prize analysis, as we call it. And this is one of our most common client applications. Basically, the idea is to tell them where the market is at, where their competitors are at, or even who their competitors are. Oftentimes, they're unaware who their competitors are in China. And uh, whether or not they have a chance for success in China based on their product, price, you know, uh, target demographic, etc., and if the answer is complex, then we offer actionable steps and solutions. We go, okay, you do A, B, C to be successful. And if you do C, it's going to up your chances by a lot because here's the data that supports it, right? So that's our main, that's our number one group of clients. Number two, uh, second group of clients are, you know, our existing e-com clients, which I also oversee. So uh, for these clients, this crypto is not an explicit product that we sell to them. It's just, a, it can be a part of their package of services that they already bought. And what we do is we work behind the scenes to inform store strategy to the operators, continuously optimizing, uh, you know, things like ad placement, consumer targeting, you know, all this uh, continu- continuous improvement process to, re- to improve return on ad spend, basically get more bang for their buck and um, drive healthy revenue growth. Now, the other side of this uh, group of clients are clients that don't work with us on e-com, but they are already in China. And uh, this is often, and they're often hitting a plateau in terms of growth or their PNL is less than desirable. So, you know, we, we can help analyze their store, you know, their store strategy, uh, kind of like an external audit, right? And then we, um, and then we can provide basically a roadmap to for them to hit the next level of growth or a path to profitability if they're having PL issues. Uh, we're actually seeing uh, quite a number of clients like this coming our doors right now. Uh, you know, as their existing partners often lack the data capability we offer. Uh, this is something I've seen. I've actually just got a call with a potential client yesterday on this. And then lastly, uh, you know, we have clients that are huge multinationals with a mature China presence. Then as a case by case, you know, we can help them do tailored data solutions like um, re- re-vector the China strategy, develop new product strategies, et cetera. But that's a bit more uh, case by case. Tell us why, in your opinion, market data is just so important to have in order to be able to run a successful consumer business in China. And that's a question I often get asked by clients, potential clients, peers, 
basically everybody has a question why is data so important and i don't want to get into like the marketing lingo you know big data this big data that but let me just illustrate to you why it's important is that one thing i often say is that china is a, a very and almost extremely competitive market where brands of the world you know from australia french german and other european countries to us and canadian companies to japan korea even south and to even southeast asian countries like thailand indonesia like brands from these countries come to compete for that 1 billion you know people consumer market so in this market and this is a phrase i often say to everybody is that you cannot expect the market to meet you and you must meet the market like that's something that's just the the uh the go to uh you know for for china so being the largest you know and also the, the com- most competitive consumer market in the world um it's you need to make data informed decisions right because the market is vast and there's lots of uh, actors playing in it and on top of that uh, what we've seen in the, in the recent two or three years is the dominance of social media and influencer marketing added an extra multiple dimensions to this whole you know mix you know and so the result of this is one of the most sophisticated and well-informed group of consumers in the world because KOLs are educating and the brands of the world are fighting for this, for the attention and the money basically of the, this group of consumers, you know, so therefore to be successful in China, every brand that wants to be in China needs to know their product market fit as well as their price market fit. And that's what Descriptive provides is that insight, right? Um, and, um, if that's not enough to convince people, the fact that oftentimes their competitors, both global competitors and domestic brands, you know, are using data in their everyday operations. And that is often to, uh, to kind of drive them to think about what we in the industry call data informed decision making. And, uh, yeah, basically the market is demanding that brands use data, think about data and, uh, you know, pay attention to data. Xiong, I really appreciate that answer because you've you've kind of tripped me onto something that here four years into this podcast, I hadn't actually really considered before. Not only do we have the most sophisticated, advanced consumer class, knowledgeable consumer class in the world, but what I failed to bring to that conversation or to that equation is that you also have some of the most sophisticated competitors in the world as well. So if you're a brand in North America and you're doing very well in North America, I would say that you probably have an American culture and you have a bit of a gut feel for who your your consumers generally are. And you yourself exist and interact and use social and purchase and make your own decisions, every individual in that company, probably in that market as well. So you have idea of what goes on there in-house and yourself. It is within the company almost organically. Okay. But now if you're going to go to somewhere like China, not only is the entire consumer class and the way that they shop and the way that they purchase and the way that they think and the way that they respond to certain types of ads or, I don't know, reviews on your store, what have you, is, is very, very, very different. But it's also 
the most competitive from the external as far as who you are competing against and how smart and fast and intelligent they are as well, just given the environment in that everyone wants to be there. So again, not to talk people out of going there and brands going there, but it's just ever more present in my opinion that you need to have a really good quality partner that has the best data. Another question for you, though, like you said, you're perfectly bilingual. You've you've bridged both cultures. Could you see another area of the world that you could possibly have something anywhere near like Descripto? Like, could you bring Descripto to Canada? China is very different than uh, certain Western countries. And um, in that in Canada and the U.S., which I'm most familiar with because I haven't grew up in Canada. Um, Descripto is not a good fit. Uh, and the reason being, uh, one, brick and mortar is alive and very well. It's very siloed. You know, you got the Best Buy selling electronics and you got the, you know, the other store selling their stuff. And it's very siloed and they sell in stores and on their own website. And in terms of e-com, there isn't really much uh, competition outside of Amazon. I know there's like Shopify, like in, individual boutique stores, but basically in terms of a platform, there is just Amazon. And, um, and then you do everything basically on Amazon, if you want to, right? So, and you use Amazon services, you use Amazon's data, and you're basically, you rely on Amazon exclusively for data. And they do offer a great data, data solutions, data tools for, to help. Um, there isn't much, uh, soil for Descripto to really blossom in, right? And then there's also a heavy component of SEO because search engines still want the, want the, uh, significant you know, has a significant market share in terms of online marketing, whereas in China, it's actually minimal now, right? The whole search engines, because we, we've moved towards social marketing. So, you know, to answer your question, in the West, because the, the way it's structured and the reliance on Amazon and Google, predominantly, some, sometimes Facebook, but mostly Amazon, Google, on, on, on for your, all your e-com marketing needs and data research needs, uh, there isn't much for much room for just crypto. However, uh, the flip side is that emerging markets, and this is one where we are expanding into the south, the Southeast Asian countries with Lazada, Shopee, you know, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, Thailand, um, Philippines, all these countries. Uh, this is where just can also shine because it's, it's a multicultural setting. It's, there's, a, there's a billion people. There's actually probably more than a billion people in South, Southeast Asia. You know, with with increasing purchasing power, increased income, and uh, very fragmented kind of uh, way of doing of doing ecom, and this is where description also shines because uh, we can integrate into these domestic markets, gather data, and create basically a Southeast Asia strategy for our uh, for 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 you know brands looking to expand. I asked you that question, kind of knowing you know this this would be the answer, but. I guess in a way, it's the wild, wild east. Everybody is allowed to try. Everybody is allowed to go. Everybody's allowed to grow. And you just see new entrants every few years growing up where it's, you know, Xiao Hongchu or, or, or Pingo Duo, Douyin or whomever. I mean, everybody comes up. Everybody's doing fascinating things. But it is so multi-platform. Uh, and there's, you know, so many different types of payments. And you have, like, everything is allowed to kind of flourish and and that you know makes it really hard for new brands and entrants to to come in if if they don't have good partners or good data. 
Um, and, and again, you know, Southeast Asia as well, very, very similar. It's wide open. There's so many different platforms and there's so many different, uh, you know, the, the pie is cut into so many different pieces in so many areas uh, versus kind of the monolithic types of, of you know, whoever's in, in the West or maybe in Europe, too. Um, although I don't know Europe as well, so I don't want to call them out for that. But yeah, that's that's really cool. I want to maybe move into just maybe talking about a branding strategy, because I know that's a big part of your job as well. So give us an example of, of a consumer branding strategy that that you think is is really great, really cool, really innovative and uh, something that, you know, you've just found to be particularly impressive in China. There are many examples that I've looked at through the throughout the years. And one of the most recent examples due to uh, some cases I'm working on is uh, in, in uh, Australian probiotics brand called uh, LifeSpace. Right, so the Chinese probiotic space is highly competitive. Um, Alibaba, no Tmall, did really developed it uh, six or seven years ago from zero. Probiotics was not a big concept in China, and now it's one of the top three health supplements category in the entire country. So it's a very very competitive space. And what LifeSpace did is they took a highly competitive, they they entered a highly competitive market. And through a very carefully crafted product assortment, you know, to positioning those products up against target consumer demographics, to crafting an extremely precise and coherent product targeting, product messaging. And then the final result is one of the largest probiotic brands in China. Uh, They're they're actually uh, a market leader. I think they're top, I think either top one or top two right now in, uh, in China. And um, the, strat- the strategy of life space, and the reason why we're looking at it is because the strategy of life space is one where every consumer brand can learn something from. You know, even a simple thing as appeal to your specific target demographic visually through the product photo that you see on the platform um, to the product description page, we call it PDPs, right? And then keeping this message consistent across all channels, not just on the team mall store but also in the live stream rooms uh, on social media etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, it's something as easy as that yet uh, i see brands all the time fumble this so and um the fact that life space can keep it consistent uh consistency is one thing but also do very targeted demographics is very impressive and they're a case study my team and I are doing so we can kind of educate our operations team, which I also support to kind of uh, push, push out that change to our clients and prospective clients. Right. And it's, it's something, and it's like an example, let me just give you an example is that something as simple as we have this probiotic to help pregnant mothers. It's safe, you know, like test it, stuff like that. And, and life space will have all these certifications, whatnot on their page. But a very important thing is they have a uh, pregnant woman holding her, you know, her, holding her, 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 um, her belly, her, uh, her belly in the product picture on just like a, on the corner. And then they will list all the, the, the ingredients and the benefits on, on the other side in big fonts. And just three seconds in, you know, if you're, if you're expecting mother, three seconds in, you're like, oh, this is something I can do versus where it's just a bottle and, and some text. Which is right, and you go in, and everything is specially crafted and tailored to appeal to a pregnant mother. And if you go to a live stream room, that's the exact same thing they're presenting. If you see it on on Xiao Hongshu, we call it Little Red Book. That's the exact same thing for that specific product, 
you see. And then for maybe like an elderly, coming for elderly people, that's a completely different messaging from the same uh, brand, right? So it's, we're, we're actually very impressed at their, uh, the precision at which they run their, their products. You're clearly an expert on China's consumer landscape there. What are some of the hottest sectors in China right now? Okay, uh, I'm going to give you the top three that I see based okay. on the data. Uh, I'm Again, these are like official data reports, and some of it is our own proprietary data. But uh, what we're seeing, number one, hottest space, especially for foreign brands, is the supplement space by far. Um, due to various historical reasons, I'm not going to elaborate on them here, but uh, Chinese consumers have a deep distrust of certain domestic health food uh, brands. So, and this is where the foreign brands really shine. And in addition, um, you know, due to COVID, really highlighting the importance of health and supplements and keeping our keeping your body healthy. Um, this is one of the few areas that's experiencing double digits, and for some product categories, triple digits growth year over year and quarter over quarter. Um, just Q1 23, we're seeing like triple, uh, double and triple digit growth, which is phenomenal in Chinese e-com because it's so big already that we're still able to see this type of growth. Um, you know, Chinese consumers view supplements as the number one way of keeping themselves healthy, overtaking physical activity like exercise, right? So that's number one. Uh, the second hottest sector I'm seeing is the pet market, uh, especially the pet foods and uh, anything cat-related, cat food, snacks, toys, accessories, whatnot. Um, because modern-day China is a very high-pressure and fast-paced uh, lifestyle, and people are you know, stressed. They're a little, little bit stressed under a lot of pressure. So um, <laughs> um, people on either end of the age spectrum, the young, young adults and the elderly, are extremely lonely in their, in their daily lives because the fast, either they are fast-paced or their children are fast-paced, and there's no really time to kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, take care of the family. Or, right? So, um, <laughs> cats, which are incredibly cute, as everyone knows, um, they have their, they're a great companionship animal, companionship pet. And they also have the added benefit of needing very little, uh, time commitment. You know, you don't need to walk, walk them every day like a dog. Uh, they can, they can take care of themselves. You just take care of the kitty litter and you feed them. That's all you do, right? So, cats, re- in recent years, the, Number of cat owners really exploded because they're like the perfect solitary uh, companionship pet for single fam- uh, single uh, households, or we call them uh, we call them single family households or single person household, right? Um, so, and these cats are being treated as part of the family because it's a family of a, a person and a cat, oftentimes, and um, when their emotional attachments for their owners and as part of the family, they are treated the best, like as a real family uh, member would be. So then this, for similar reasons to health supplements, this is another area where premium foreign brands really shine. Um, The same can be said for dogs just to a lesser degree because um, relatively higher income Chinese people tend to live in small into cities, which have smaller home sizes. So um, then these are not very friendly for dogs or who needs to be active. Right. And dogs also require more work. So, uh, Pets is growing double digits, but cats is really shining in this in this large category. And uh, the third category I'm just gonna quickly go over is uh, personal care, skincare market. 
uh, this is a very, very large market already where premium brands of the world come to compete in China, you know, the Estee Lauders and whatnot. So it's not going to grow at 100% or 50% year over year. However, the average order value is steadily growing. Uh, consumers spend more per order or spend more on per product. And the biggest reason, there's lots of reasons. The biggest reason here is just simply that as people make more money, uh, they are willing to spend a bit more, spend a bit more on themselves to treat themselves on nicer products. Would you say that as a lesser known, lesser paid attention to sector, and let's take nutraceuticals or even, you know, sports apparel or something, you know, as it becomes a bit of a wave in China where people, they cared, they did their their certain things, but it wasn't a huge need for them to really be taking supplements and invest in themselves in that way. Once that shift or that wave really overtakes, does that sudden spike in a sector's growth, if it's relatively new to consumer habits or daily lifestyle, does that inherently, would you, would you say that it offers an opportunity, a, a unique opportunity to foreign brands to jump in because there is less or none of an existing loyalty to locally homegrown products. So as they wait for their own homegrown products or or brands to grow in prestige and loyalty and trust, that is kind of an opportune time for foreign brands to come in and have a great chance of getting a foothold. The simple answer is yes. <laughs> so um, in the neutral pseudo space, it's it just presents an amazing opportunity for foreign brands. And, but the reason is is not as what you, you described. is okay. not because consumers are waiting for a domestic kind of a domestic champion to arise. Is um, there, are, there are a lot of historical factors. You know, Chinese people really prefer to to uh, they're, and they're willing to spend more money on a product that was say EU certified or FDA you know kind of FDA approved because they know that okay I'm buying or I'm eating the exact same thing somebody in France or German or New York uh, is eating because this is like an EU approved product. So it doesn't contain things that are banned in the EU or, or it's banned in, the, in North America. So they're, they can, they're, they trust the quality of the products. And, um, and, and, you know, and this is where, this is the space that foreign companies, Australian, you know, the two largest uh, supplement brands in China are Australian companies. This is where foreign brands really shine. And because there's that that kind of natural trust factor, so as long as your product price is a good fit for the market, and I kind of allude to that, you need a product market fit and a price market fit, um, and uh, you know, and then you you have a good go to market strategy. This is where foreign brands will really shine. And one, and you know, you you don't need to worry about a domestic uh, product kind of growing and then really overtaking your market share because once you're entrenched, once you've established trust, because this is stuff people eat every day. This is stuff people give to their kids, people give to their parents. Uh, Once there's a trust established in your brand, loyalty is going to be there because people don't easily uh, switch their supplement 
uh, brands because you know I've been eating this for two three years without any problems. Why would I change, try something new? Right. I don't know really what made me want to ask that question per se. Just thinking that some of those some of those sectors have not been leaned on heavily by consumers in the past. And so, you know, and COVID might have been a good example of a macro event that inspired a new wave of enthusiasm on something that hasn't really been too involved yet, therefore potentially a great opportunity. Now, that's not to say, though, that you're not going to face an incredible amount of competition. It just might not be as highly local of competition as you might have expected, whereas it's mostly foreign brands that you're now competing heavily with as well. Um, and I want to lean on that that touch on COVID and ask you what you how you feel consumer confidence has been uh, since the COVID restrictions have been lifted from the beginning of the year. Okay. Um, so based on lots of data, market data, uh, macroeconomic data, the, the, you know, that, uh, from official or authoritative sources and also empirical, you know, things I'm seeing physically with my, me being on the ground here, I'll say the general, uh, the word I would use here is, uh, cautiously optimistic. Uh, they're definitely more conscious about where and how much they are spending. You know, as there's still um, there's still uh, a hint of uncertainty about the economic and about their own futures, right? However, they are indeed spending more than uh, during COVID, especially during 2020. Uh, sorry, during 2022. Now, remember when I said they are one of the most informed, one of the most well-informed consumers in the world. This is where that informed decision making kicks in. You know, and the consumers are, are smart about the are being very smart about the products they buy and the price they pay, and the rise of uh, influencer social marketing is really contributing to this. It's basically a KOL with millions. I'm talking sometimes tens of millions of followers saying, "Hey, this brand, best bang for your buck, bang for your buck great product, right?" Um, so, so the good news is that the data is starting to pick up, and that everywhere I travel. I'm seeing packed malls and people lining up outside restaurants. This is something I haven't seen since COVID. This is really reminiscent of the pre-COVID era, right? Um, but consumers are definitely spending more energy on what they buy, where they buy, how much they buy than before COVID. Because while they're still willing to spend, they, are, uh, they have less money, basically. Or they're willing to spend less money and save more. So you know they want to get the most bang for the buck. And, you know, it's natural. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that there was a lot of predictions around revenge, everything, revenge travel, right? Uh, you know, everybody was just going to be escaping from everywhere. As soon as COVID lifted worldwide, everybody, you know, suitcase sales are going to go through the roof, right? Everybody's going to travel. Um, and it's been a tempered return. Like you said, Cautiously optimistic. Good to hear that it's uh, pretty similar in, in China, too. They're being smart about it. Um, and I think everybody's taking some measured approaches this time. Um, we are recording this and publishing this less than a week from June 18th. And June 18th is, of course, 618, one of the biggest shopping fests. It'll, it will be the biggest shopping day of the year so far, of course, until we get to 1111. 
what are the early indicators and data that you're seeing as we are just minutes away from June 18th happening? 618, we call it 618, uh, actually starts the on the at 8 p.m. May 31st. So it's a thing that runs for 20 days, basically, in end of May, beginning of June. And uh, but you know, there's promotions and activities and marketing that built that leads up to it for basically for the entire month of May. You have to build up. We call it, you know, we call it filling in the reserve of potential buyer interested buyers leading up to May 31st. We get the first wave, and then for another two weeks, you build up some more, and then until you hit June 15th, which is the second and the last uh, wave, right? So, um, and 618 is what we call in the industry an S level event, the only other one being double 11. And um, what we've seen this year is that it's twofold. One, the data actually looks really good so far. Um, we're seeing some really strong numbers compared to last year. However, uh, we, when we look into the, the kind of the cause behind why we're seeing great numbers, is that these less S-level events, 618.11, are becoming ever more important for brands. Because consumers, like I said before, they're trying really hard to get the most out of their money. And they're very conscious about their purchasing rhythm, right? Leading up and leading up to, during, and then after these events. Because they know, everybody know, in China knows these sales are coming, when they're coming, and the type of, basically, the best discount they can get for a good six or seven month is during this two, three week period. So um, we've seen data that pretty much indicates consumers are stocking up for longer than normal periods. You know, instead of buying maybe like a one month supply, they're buying three, four, sometimes five basically in amounts that can last them until double 11, which is in November, the other uh, S-level promotion, right? So while the data is good, uh, this behavior means that if a brand decides not to participate in or, uh, you know, misses 618 for whatever reason, or, you know, uh, did not kind of did not discount their fullest during 618, well, where the competitors did, then they're going to see headwinds that might last all the way into August uh, when uh, a uh, A-level, which is a degree lower, an A-level event takes place. And that's uh, August 8th. We call it uh, the 8-8, the double 8 VIP uh, sales. So 618 is becoming ever more important. Uh, don't, like the, a, a strong 618 data is not indicative that it's going to be a strong year throughout. It's just 618 is getting much more important than previous years because the consumers are being smart. And, uh, you know, everybody has to adapt to that uh, post-COVID reality. Sounds like that Costco mentality of uh, buy way too much and way more than you need is starting to penetrate <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, Xiang Chen, uh, WPIC's Marketing and Technologies, VP of Strategy and Insights. I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the show and bringing uh, so many good hot takes, especially all the information around data. That was a really, really great interview. Uh, really, really great uh, insights and information for our audience. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Todd. It was my pleasure.
So for everybody listening to us on the podcast, which you can find on Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts, please don't forget that we are live, uh, not live. We are on video, on YouTube, on WPIC's YouTube channel. So please head over to the WPIC YouTube channel and you can check us out there. Plus lots and lots of shorts from each of these conversations, picking out some of the smartest things that we may have said during this show. But from me and everybody else who's involved with the negotiation, I want to thank you for listening today. And we will see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.